0: Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today we have first-time guest Christopher, a.k.a. Ice Must Be Destroyed guy. How you doing,
1: Chris? Hello. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. It's stunningly a nice day. Sun's out. Having, having a good time. Sun's out. Gun's out? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know. That's
0: just a thing that cool guys say, I guess. Um, not me. So today we are on, uh, part seven, uh, chapter eight of, uh, seeing like a state. If you haven't listened to the other parts of the series, you might want to go back and listen to them. Uh, I don't think it's like so dependent on the earlier stuff that you won't get anything out of it, but you know, it's a series. You may as well listen to the whole thing. So chapter eight is called uh, "Taming Nature: An Agriculture of Le- Legibility and Simplicity," and so this is all about the differences between um, like indigenous agriculture versus state agriculture. Do you have any
1: preliminary thoughts on this before we get into it? Yeah, I, I think one of the the interesting and this ties into sort of the last episode, but or the last few episodes, but the 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 way that. Specifically with agriculture, it sort of doesn't matter whether you're dealing with these sort of enormous state-driven industrialization, like agricultural industrialization efforts, or whether you're dealing with the sort of market reform, USAID stuff. Just the, 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 the way they think about farming is just exactly the same, and they run into exactly the same problems. Hmm. Yeah, and this, this, this whole chapter, I guess, is Scott going, going really in-depth about the specific like the, the the polyculture modern culture stuff and the the, the specific ways that the i guess you call it high modernist but the, the ways that sort of scientific forestry and the ways that industrial agriculture intend to impose themselves on a land instead of like working around it and that how this just doesn't work <laughs> at all
0: right i i think one thing that's really interesting about this topic is like it's so essential to like our survival. (laughs) Uh, You know, we need to eat every day. And uh, it's we like most people, I think just don't know how any of this stuff works. Um, I read probably more than the average person about agriculture. And I didn't know some of the stuff that was in this chapter at all. And this is really one of those things where people who, uh, who don't know a lot about it will just like assume that, the way that it's done on the mass scale is like the only way that it can be done. Mm -hmm. You know, if you start talking about permaculture or something like that, then a lot of the like high modernist uh, or like, uh, God, I I hate, I hate that there's still no word for this, but like people who are people who subscribe to scientism, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They will, they will say like, there's no way that you can feed You know, all the humans that are alive right now without doing, like, mass pesticides and, like, huge monocultures and stuff like that. But I I think we'll get into how that's – I don't think that's really true. And um, he doesn't quite touch as much on, like, how the industrial agriculture system is, like, destroying the planet to the point (laughs) where, like, we won't be able to feed everyone by, like, 2060. (laughs) Yeah, which we we've talked about on the show like several times, um, especially with young neocon. Um, That's like a big repeat topic for us. But um, yeah, I I think we'll see why everything, like why it works the way that it does, and uh, I don't know. I guess like why it's not going to work out for the better if we don't do something about it. So Scott is. Um, talking about these like the similarities between the scientific forestry that he talked about in chapter One um with scientific agriculture, the preconditions of the simplifications done in scientific forestry um, and presumably in scientific agriculture were the existence of a commodity market and competitive pressure on states as well as entrepreneurs to maximize profits and revenue um, so one thing that Young Yokan kept uh, bringing up in the last episode was that like uh, most of the pressures were due to like the Tanzanian government trying to produce farms that would, you know, grow export crops. And so in order to do that, you have to succumb to these like higher level organizations of the state and their, their needs and like the, the, their expectations. And so we're going to see like, what shapes those like and uh what like what their mode of thought is behind that
1: yeah I, I think there's also something important here that scott it's not really what scott's talking about but something that shapes the sort of global, global agriculture uh agricultural market is that so when 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 all of the sort of the wto's and nafta when, when all of the sort of free trade agreements were signed um so basically, they, it was made illegal to do sort of state, uh, like state subsidies for. Uh, well, okay, in theory, it was made legal to do state subsidies of things like agriculture. Mm-hmm. Now there are a couple of exceptions carved out to this. Uh, things like like German shoemaking or something like there's, there's a couple of, like very specific exceptions that you need to do in order to get like the G7 to hold together. But then the one other big exception is that American agriculture gets to have these like like billions and billions and billions of dollars of farm subsidies that is literally illegal for any other country to do. And this this is one of the other problems of trying to do. This happens before to some extent like Tanzania is trying to enter the global market, but like this causes a big problem because if if you're trying to produce agricultural goods for the market and you have to compete with just these like extremely inefficient but unbelievably subsidized like giant american factory farms are kind of screwed mm-hmm. because i mean again like, they just, like the us government just funnels money on them and and that that makes a lot of the sort of agricultural stuff look a lot more productive than it actually is just because because they're the only people who are allowed to have all of this sort of like state backed like agricultural subsidies
0: right that was actually i don't i don't remember exactly why i think it was something to do with the um, the ethanol craze in like the late 2000s. But uh, that was one of the first like political economy facts that I learned was that corn only like happens in the U S because it's so subsidized by the government. But I, I definitely didn't know that um, it was illegal for other countries to do that.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and and this is another, this is another interesting thing. I actually talked about this a bit on another podcast, but it's about like, like the, the way that American agriculture functions is basically on it's not because it's not just the corn like like california agriculture which isn't as like quote unquote industrialized it's you know high labor input Mm -hmm. but that also works on state subsidies and the other thing it works on is just like hyper exploited migrant labor and the fact that anytime any other non-white group comes in and like actually starts doing the farming well because again the white white californians can't farm like they just get (laughs) ethnically cleansed like, like this is this is this is what Japanese internment was. It was white farmers being like, "Hold on, wait, we have a chance to just completely wipe out every Japanese farmer in California." And They did it, and you know, when when internment happened, like all of the land the Japanese farmers had taken just got redistributed to like white farmers. And so, yeah, this is the this is this is the fun <laughs> this is the fun stuff, quote unquote, where you know, like I, I think uh, Kevin Carson calls it the. Uh, yeah, He calls it the subsidy of history, where it's like a lot like a lot of agricultural practices, like a lot of, of capitalist firms get the subsidy that's just like genocide. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that like deeply shapes the way that sort of different agricultural and sort of modernist projects work in ways that don't really get talked about much and is incredibly depressing. I, I might have mentioned it on this show before. Um,
0: I don't remember exactly, but, um, I was reading about uh the wealth of nations and adam smith in there talks about how the us economy works so well because there's plentiful land that can be cultivated yeah <laughs> but like doesn't mention why that's the case yep yep <laughs> and i think that's a good summary of i don't know economics as a field and us history and mm-hmm. and so on um so Scott, uh, in this chapter, he emphasizes that he doesn't want to get too much into the particular reasons that specific projects of scientific agriculture failed, um, but wants to look at the deeper underlying causes. Um, And he says that these were, in other words, systemic failures and would have occurred under the best assumptions about administrative efficiency and probity. I don't actually remember what failures he was talking about specifically, but anyway, (laughs) let's just move on. Um, yeah. <laughs> so he says that, uh, experimental science is a useful tool for many things, but not for dealing with something like an ecosystem because you need to isolate specific variables and ignore everything else. And the more things that you ignore, the less it applies to reality when you bring it out of the experimental setting. And he'll, he keeps talking about that repeatedly in here because, scientific agriculture is essentially like based on the idea that these experiments in like one small field for one crop cycle um can just be applied on the mass scale um over unlimited amounts of time uh which is you know the cause of many of our problems today (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: It reminds me a lot of the the the, the physics joke of uh, assume a cow is a sphere of uniform volume of, of uniform density. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's you know yeah they're they're trying to like they have all these spherical cows and they're like okay the spherical cow is gonna do is gonna do this the spherical cow will roll down the hill and they have a bunch of actual cows and the cows don't roll down the hill and they're like wait why is this <laughs> happening and this just keeps happening over and over again. So. Uh, I have – I'm not going to
0: quote the whole thing, but a passage from the beginning of the chapter. Scott says, my purpose is to show how the imperial pretensions of agronomic science, its inability to recognize or incorporate knowledge created outside its paradigm, sharply limited its utility to many cultivators. Whereas farmers, as we shall see, seem pragmatically alert to knowledge coming from any quarter should it serve their purposes, Modern uh, modern agronomic planners are far less receptive to other ways of knowing um so that's that's the uh the setup for the rest of the chapter i suppose um all right so i'm just going to keep going um that was all the sections in this are short there's like it's like three dozen very short sections for this chapter so you're going to hear the next section is called very very often (laughs) (laughs) so the next section is called varieties of agricultural simplification um, subsection Early Agriculture. So he's talking about like, not. Uh, I don't think he's talking about like uh, ancient agriculture so much as like the crudest forms of agriculture, because uh, you know it's it's hard to know a whole lot about ancient agriculture, and I think that's the topic that he gets into in his later book. But um, he points out uh, something that. I've had to come to realize myself, which is even the most rudimentary forms of cultivation involve lessening biodiversity, so whenever you farm, there's always some amount of trade off with the natural ecosystem because you know the the point of it is to increase the population of something favorable to you mm-hmm. and you can't really do that without taking up space that would otherwise be used for other life forms so here he, here's where he talks about the land races thing. It's a little difficult to understand, but it's it's basically seems like it's cultivars that are genetically diverse and adapted to certain places and conditions as opposed to like arbitrary standardized cultivars like we have today where like a land race would be like a cultivar specific to the Appalachian foothills in a hot and dry season um whereas a modern cultivar would be like slow bolting drought resistant something that's just my guess he doesn't i don't think he gives like very specific examples on this.
1: Yeah, that actually, that makes a lot of sense though.
0: Yeah. And and he says that all modern crops of any economic significance are the product of land races. So basically like these sort of, these so-called crude farmers or rudimentary farmers uh, created like millions of different cultivars of plants. And from that, the scientists found ones that were Especially conducive to their specific purposes, and selected those, and turned them into modern hybrid forms. And he says, until about 1930, all uh, scientific crop breeding was essentially a process of selection from among the existing land races. And so, since then, they've come up with these these hybrids. And then, this book again was written in 1998, so this was before like BT corn really took over everything. Yeah. <laughs> so he doesn't really mention that at all, which is was kind of
1: interesting. Well, I, I think he he talks a bit about like he it's, it's interesting because because you know when you you can he he can there, there's evidence he kind of he sees it coming to some extent. I mean, especially with the with the next section about sort of 20th century agriculture, there's there there's some signs that he's like, oh, uh, you know the the standardized modern like cultivars like have less genetic diversity and you know you, you get monocropping. And, you know, if you project that out, like, the, 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 the logical, like, extreme example of this is just, you have just BT corn, and it's just only BT corn.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, you know, this is this is all, we, we, we have the benefit of, of 20 more years of absolute bullshit going on in farming, so, <laughs> yeah.
0: And I, I think the way that the um, BT corn works is that they actually take, like, a normal, like, a regular breed of corn, like, I mean, it would be yellow dent corn, that's what every single type of corn is in the u.s um and they just like shoot genes into it so they can take like an existing corn breed and make it into bt corn Mm. so it's not like a specific like breed of corn that's just what they turn it into by um i i think what they do is they like attach this uh bacterial dna to like Gold nanospheres, and then like shoot it with a gun into the <laughs> into the corn. Interesting, like an AR fifteen. That's what they use. Wait, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but anyway, I'm just having this image of someone just like machine gunning I'm like oh, this giant world with a Gatling gun, I'm just like I'm gonna get all this corn.
0: Like the the bit in Futurama where Bender finds a a Tommy gun, and he just like shoots it, like shoots the whole clip out, and he's like, "That was fun." <laughs> yeah (laughs) um so anyway yeah so that section is just about the land races um not a lot else in there um and then there's another subsection uh that chris just mentioned which is 20th century agriculture um so he says it's characterized by its lack of genetic diversity input intensity and mechanization and um i i think he actually was just talking about the hybridization stuff um with the lack of genetic diversity because, you know, I never thought of this, but he like, he points out that basically like hybridization. Well, he doesn't say this specifically, uh, but hybridization was like the, uh, the genetic engineering of its time. And uh, one of the things that people freak out about with the uh, GM crops is the, the terminator seeds um, as they're supposedly called, which is like a seed that you can only plant once and then, You can't like collect seed from it, but he points out that like these hybrids, you can't really collect seed from them either because either they are sterile and they won't produce any like additional generations of plants, Mm -hmm. or even if they're not, you won't get the same hybrid out of the seed like (laughs) that you collect that you got going into it. Um, So it's not even like really a new thing. The the so called Terminator seeds, yeah. And then another thing that I thought was really interesting about this uh, was two proponents of this uh, niche kind of made up subject called phytoengineering are quoted by Scott as saying, machines are not made to harvest crops. In reality, crops must be designed to har- be harvested by machine. And so he talks about specifically the, the supermarket tomato, which is the you know nasty, bad, watery tomato that you get at the grocery store. That, you know, come in the container of four or whatever. And uh, so he says, the tomato plants eventually bred for mechanical harvesting were hybrids of low stature and uniform maturity that produced similarly sized fruits with thick walls, firm flesh, and no cracks. The fruits were picked green in order to be uh, in order to avoid being bruised by the grasp of the machinery and were artificially ripened by ethylene gas during transport. The results were the small, uniform winter tomatoes sold four to a package which dominated supermarket shelves for several decades. Taste and nutritional quality were secondary to machine compatibility
1: <laughs> Something this made me think about this it's kind of far afield, but I, I guess it fits into the sort of the the, the theme of modernism is so the, the this this whole thing about how. You 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 have the machine right, and you, but you have to sort of fit everything else around it to make the machine work. Mm-hmm. There's, there's I think there's like two interesting examples. This one was like David Graeber talks about this about how like early computers just like sucked. Yeah, like sort of like like in like the 70s and 80s it was like you know it's like all like every, all the bank systems using computers was like they're bad. They don't they don't do their job. They break all the time. And there's this whole process of having to make everyone else like in the society function around how badly these machines work and this <laughs> this actually still happens yeah like a lot of like a lot of like mechanized stuff in factories doesn't like it's all fake like it just doesn't work so people have to constantly sort of like hack stuff together in order to get like these like incredibly advanced machines to work and then the the other one so there's something happens in like the very early chinese revolution this is like like 1940 like maybe like even 1948 1949 where like the the only sort of industrialized stuff that's left in World War Two are the these this like factory built in Manchuria that was built by the Japanese. Sorry, I'm going like really far afield here. <laughs> it's fine. But this this, this 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 I swear this goes back to this. But yeah, you know, and and there's an early attempt to like run these factories democratically, and they can't do it because the factories were just like physically designed to use slave labor, and so the only way they can get these factories to work is by sort of reinstalling the the, the managerial system. And and I keep thinking about the. the 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 ways that both and this this is the sort of the flip side of it. You you, you have two sides of these sort of technical systems where, on the one side, you have, you have these factories that like require certain like literally physically require certain forms of human social organization in order to function. And then the 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 flip side is that you have these machines where, in order to get like like the, the plant like you know the, the the harvesters to work, right, you have to completely redesign the natural environment like like right like, and going all the way from you know plowing fields flat and getting rid of marshes all the way down to we have to like genetically engineer these tomatoes so that they're exactly the right sort of height. And yeah.
0: All that stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah. They have, they have all this uniformity and it, I don't know. It strikes me as interesting. Like this, this is just the, the, the broad social consequence of having all of these sort of incredibly top-down like high modernist engineering projects is you, you, you have to engineer in order for them to work both the physical environment and all of the people using it have to be, engineered specifically to their purposes and this has just disastrous effects for everyone
0: i want to get really into that um specific point about the um the the factories at at some point because i've tried to explain that to people before where i'm like yeah i mean if there is like a revolution and we abolish the state we're also going to have to like dismantle those factories and recycle their materials for something else. And people are always like, well, why don't we just use them? And It's like, well, because they're made for like uh, slaves, essentially. (laughs) Like, yeah, they're, they're they're not like more efficient. I did a whole episode on like how factories emerged. They're not, they aren't built because they're more efficient. They're built because Mm -hmm. it facilitates surveillance and forced labor and that's the whole point of them so like why would you want to like why would you want to do that but like voluntarily yeah (laughs) just it makes no sense and i I didn't think of connecting it to the to this specific subject so that that was an interesting point
1: yeah it does come back to this like in, in in the last chapters he doesn't do it as much here but scott talks a lot about the ways that you know the, the giant sort of factory farms, the giant collectivized farms are designed to mimic a factory and that it, g- it gives you the same level of state control. Oh, that's true. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, and I think, you know, the, 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 mirroring, the mirroring, the, the attempt to transform every aspect of production, every aspect of social life, every aspect of sort of human interactions into something that is legible to a state is really important in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll talk about that. I will talk about, I'll talk about the other thing later. Yeah.
0: Um and then the other thing I wanted to say, uh Chris and I did an episode uh co-host Chris uh and I did a an episode on the Soviet tea industry in Georgia. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about that was like, you know, tea tea grows on trees. Uh so they're like trees. Um, but the way that they grew it in Soviet Georgia was it was like A long, like, mound. (laughs) And the reason they did this is because they had these machine harvesters that would basically come and, like, give them a haircut. (laughs) Oh, no. So instead of, like, having laborers come in and, like, pick two leaves and a bud, like, you know, they do in China, they would just come and, like, shave off all the leaves and stems and twigs (laughs) um, so that they could have, like, this extremely large-scale production production. And I mean, it was obviously like terrible tea, but they did produce all of their own tea. So (laughs) mission accomplished, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, I guess tea is just not made to be machine harvested the way that like, you know, wheat is or something. Mm -hmm. That whole section was basically about that. Oh yeah. I did want to make the point that like, I, I'm an engineer, a a sort of engineer, (laughs) And so I know that making a machine do something like the, the difficulty of doing that increases exponentially if the task isn't like uniform.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So the tomatoes being uniform Heights, like I, I really get that. Like, uh, and, and the complexity thing goes doubly. So if you're talking about physical moving parts rather than just like software or electronics, so like a machine that can harvest crops, even remotely resembling the way that human hands could yeah, would be like, if not impossible sci-fi technology prohibitively expensive compared to like just forcing people to do it mm-hmm. which is why uh there's still like tons of farm labor jobs uh where they basically like force migrants to do it basically like actually existing mechanization has to use something close to the ideal of a flat field with identical plants growing uniform fruits of perfectly even maturity so like yeah. they really have to like shape the the plant and the environment to make it work with the machine because otherwise the machine would be too expensive to be
1: like usable by farmers. This is reminding me again of the, this is the thing Scott brings up over and over again about how, you know, like the, 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 the the Soviet collective farm designed in a hotel room in Chicago. Mm. Yeah. That is so funny. Yeah. But when, when you're doing machines like this, you inevitably like have to do something like this because of, of the sort of the demands of this kind of agriculture. Right. And
0: another thing that he like mentions in passing um, is I I don't know how many people are familiar with like uh, models of engineering design, but like basically in the 60s and 70s, all these engineers would have used the waterfall model, which is where you like lay out this huge like tome of requirements uh, for every single thing and like try to design like every single aspect of whatever you're engineering like at the beginning and then you just like implement it in one go. Whereas today it's more like an iterative process of like you design part of it and then test it and then see what works and change what doesn't work. And then you design another part of it and so on until you have like a full machine. But so like their failures, uh, in design were like amplified by the fact that they just like did it all in one go and like, didn't go back and revise anything afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so speaking of that, <laughs> the next subsection is called the unintended consequences of simplification. <laughs> so there was a, a research council, a U.S. national research council committee formed after this corn leaf blight destroyed much of the U S harvest in 1970. And they studied, uh, Crop crop Epidemics from the Irish Potato Famine up to 1970, and they concluded, These encounters show clearly that crop monoculture and genetic uniformity invite epidemics. All that is needed (laughs) is the arrival on the scene of a parasite that can take advantage of tube vulnerability. If the crop is uniformly vulnerable, so much the better for the parasite. In this way, virus diseases have devastated sugar beets with yellows, peaches with yellows, potatoes with leaf roll and X and Y viruses, cocoa with swollen shoot, Clover with sudden death, sugar came with mosaic, and rice with oja blanca. And then Scott goes on to say that the modern usage of pesticides, uh, which exploded in the post-war period and has culminated in GMO crops uh, to be resistant to them, must be seen as an integral feature of this genetic vulnerability, not as an unrelated scientific breakthrough. That, that just makes me think of how, like, scientists have been warning for, like, decades that are, that society is also at risk of a massive pandemic that would yeah. <laughs> completely take it out. <laughs> yeah. Um. And they, it, it, yeah, it
1: turns out they were right about that. <laughs> and I think it's also interesting that you know, it, this this is an example of just like the the problems that are being that they're trying to deal with with the sort of pesticide increases, right? You know, this, this is the whole pesticide treadmill thing like they're causing like, the problem that the pesticide is designed to deal with is a problem they have caused. Right. And they are trying to solve it with more pesticides. But it's like, okay, you you you, you are the one who caused this problem with the, the the sort of monocultures in the first place. And, you know, you can have whatever unbelievably lethal pesticides that like God help you if any of this ever, if there's ever any production problem here, you know, you're going to get both Paul's like.
0: So come on, man. What are we going to run out of nitrogen? <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, you know, they they keep doing this, but they but they they never address the underlying issue of <laughs> like, like of, of 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 the way they're doing agriculture in the first place, and so they're just stuck throwing more intense poisons.
0: It's my favorite phrase: uh, the problems are bad, but the causes are very good. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that was just like so salient to this is the the solution to the 1970s blight that spurred that study ended up coming from a rare Mexican land race that was then hybridized with the four varieties. Oh, it's actually seven varieties of corn grown across the entire U.S. (laughs) I looked it up yesterday. Seven varieties of corn in the entire U.S. Um, So thus the planned forest slash village slash city slash society slash farm failed and had to be rescued (laughs) by an informal and unplanned forest slash village slash city slash society slash farm, which was deprecated by the state um, for, you know, being the way that it is, which makes it like better than
1: the thing that failed. I have a sort of, sort of funny story about that. Um, yeah, go ahead. My aunt married an indigenous dude. So I have a bunch of family who like live on a res in like Montana. And one of the things that he does is he spends a bunch of time growing like different kinds of corn. And so, you know, we get like. <laughs> uh, like he fucks around with new types? Yeah, yeah. One. Well, and also like he specifically, like he's dealing with sort of. He, he's, he's trying to sort of bring back to some extent the 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 practices around older practices around cold cultivation from sort of around the americas and cool yeah yeah it's it's extremely cool and he also has he has the coolest dog his dog just like chases bears off in rules <laughs> 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 yeah okay this, this is the bear dog <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know like and I was, yeah but this is like you're saying about how this the state gets bailed out by the 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 the, the people that sort of like the people who they've been whose agricultural methods they sneer at and destroy just keep being saved by them because hmm, maybe one of these actually works better than the other yeah it's funny
0: like that that happens with like so many solutions of like you know like the wonders of modern science like uh the one that i thought of right away was um penicillin um has been known in some form since like you know 800 bc people were like putting moldy bread on their wounds to disinfect yeah. them, um but then it was like isolated in was it 1918 1920 something like that um and they're like oh my god wow science invented penicillin that's crazy
1: yeah we're well, funny is they didn't even like they did it on accident like they didn't they didn't even figure it out like it's just <laughs> screw up like, i didn't get there
0: All right. So the next section is the Catechism of High Modernist Agriculture. I still don't know what Catechism means. Um, why don't you define that while I read ahead and figure out what to say? <laughs> oh God. Okay. So this is
1: I'm we're 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 we're, we're 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 tapping into my 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 deep Lutheran knowledge <laughs> when I was a child and went to confirmation. So catechisms are like, oh God. So the Lutheran, is like, it's like there's a small catechism and a big catechism. It's just like the sort of like it's it's basically a statement of faith. Okay. That's like written out, and when, whenever whenever you have a theological question in Lutheranism, it's like, "What is the Trinity?" Blah 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 blah. And you don't want to commit heresy. You just you say the Catechism word for word because that's that's the only thing you can say about it. That's not heresy. Okay. So yeah, this is this is this is what the Catechism is.
0: Uh, my girlfriend and I just watched the new season of Solar Opposites, which is like kind of a it's like kind of a dumb like it's basically Rick and Morty but with aliens. Um, yeah with aliens as main characters, Rick and Morty already has aliens. But anyway, uh, one of the episodes they have, like they get into like the culture of the planet that they came from. And one of the things was like the sacred number and they like, recite it before they eat. And, uh, so I guess that's what they're referring to the catechism. Yeah. Okay. That, that explains it to me. Um, so, uh, Scott is talking about the like export model of agriculture, which became the dominant system in the U S uh, in the post-war era. And he says that hundreds of irrigation and dam projects modeled roughly on the Tennessee Valley Authority were begun and that U.S. advisors went around the world to assist with creating highly capitalized, large-scale mechanized agriculture. And uh, that actually many of the personnel they sent around were from uh, the Department of Agriculture, the DOT, the FAO, the USAID, and often the Tennessee Valley Authority itself. Um, So the reason that, like, a lot of agriculture around the world mirrors the U S is because it was literally like U S Tennessee Valley authority or department of agriculture officials, like telling them how to do it. Uh, so he, he talks about Rachel Carson who wrote silent spring, which was like supposedly started the environmental movement. Uh, I think that's probably an overstatement, but that's what everyone says about it. So he says like at that time, like most scientific writers were saying like the exact opposite of what Rachel Carson was saying, which is like, mechanized agriculture is bad, DDT is bad, like, all this stuff. Um, they were instead saying, like, no, we need uh, uh, fields that are, like, 100 yards across and miles long so they can be yeah. harvested by one big machine pass, and the, the grain needs to be uh, put into an elevator straight into uh, a silo and uh, animal feed lot, which is, like, right next door, and we're going to have weather control to prevent hailstorms yeah. and tornadoes. Um, and, and atomic energy will level hills and make irrigation water from seawater. Um, just like completely insane stuff to us. But uh, at the time, maybe like it was more more plausible. But,
1: you know, I, I think there's something interesting. I'm talking about China because I spent a lot of time studying Chinese agriculture sort of accidentally. But th- there's an interesting thing here where even even when they don't have the machines – like the sort of high modernists think like this, like in China, like you know, their big agricultural problem is that they don't like they actually do need to produce a grand surplus because they have this urban population. But they don't they don't have any like basically no mechanized stuff. Right. But even, you know, this This is this is where the sort of Chinese collapse differs from the Soviet one is that they like so their, their solution to this is we're just going to throw people at it. But they still do this same thing where, like, in the the first 10 years before before the Great Leap Forward, you know, Chinese agriculture was, like, it was doing fine. Its productivity was actually increasing.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't the whole thing of the Great Leap Forward was, like, they took people out of the country and put them in the cities? (laughs) Well, I
2: mean, they they
1: did a couple things. So they took a bunch of agricultural labor out of the fields and made them do, like – dig trenches and stuff uh-huh. and like canals and all these irrigation products and and the, the way the way, you know the way they counterbalanced which is make everyone in the fields work harder but then also for for no reason and I, like it, the, the only reason you can think of this for this is, is purely ideological is that they 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 took control of farming outside of the hands of like the people who were doing the farming which is how it, it had worked until then mm-hmm. and just like expanded it to the commune level which is like these massive suddenly you have like thousands and thousands of people in these communes that are spread out over huge geographic areas, people don't even know each other, and you know and they, they you know they they, they they want these massive organizational units for and there's no reason for this it doesn't it doesn't work it, it's it's significantly less effective and like and you, you, you see, they, they start combining people's plots so you get these plot like miles long plots, but it's like they don't even have, like, the tractors for it. They're just doing this out of, like... Marxist aesthetic, basically. Yeah, like, like pure, pure, Zizic, like, uh, pure Zizic <laughs> ideology. Like, it's, it's incredible.
0: Oh. God damn it. I put a really good joke in here. Um, so, this guy Billard was talking about this, you know, atomic energy leveling hills and stuff. And uh, <laughs> I said, or as Billard says later in the article, capitalism is American power plus electrification of the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best joke in this fucking note stock and I I missed it.
2: <laughs> it's a good joke.
0: <laughs> so, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, the the nerds of this time didn't believe in iterative improvement like the nerds of today, so they preferred big honkin planned projects built from scratch. Um so the purely technical projects they planned out were seen as exercises in technical expertise. And the creation of modules that could be used anywhere,
1: which uh, any any programmer will know why that doesn't work. Yeah, well, and, and I want to talk about that briefly as my last like digression for a bit. So there, sure. So I, I was an, I studied anthropology in college, and lucky, <laughs> you know, you, have, you have, this book is one of the things you have to read, and you know, there's a lot of anthropologists don't like it for a number of reasons. Um, but there there's a really interesting critique of it called "Seeing Like an Oil Company." by James Ferguson that I, I think everyone should read because it's like five pages long. But it, it's about how, contra the way that sort of, at the very beginning of the book, Scott talks about how markets work. And it's like, well, markets have the same sort of unifying, they have the same sort of simplification effects that uh, states do, where they, they, they try to re- reduce everything to a legible grid. Um, Ferguson's argument about oil companies is that they, they do this module thing, but they only do it in like a very, very narrow area. So you know, if you look at like an like an oil in an oil well in Nigeria, right, there they'll just be like this town that's just that's just the oil well where like all of the sort of the, the, the like American workers who they brought into work in the oil well come in and you know and they 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 have the technical module, it's like exactly like that, that just like that tiny, very enclosed area is just like basically a piece of the US. Mm-hmm. And then everywhere else around it, they just like the, the oil company doesn't care about. Right. Because it don't it only sees like these like nodes and then they moves from node to node to node and just ignores the rest of the sort countryside. And I think that's a interesting it's an interesting difference in the way that states and markets function. That I think is it, but it's interesting because you know he is talking about this here, right? This sort of like Scott is talking about how the, these sort of modules you can move everywhere. And this doesn't work with agriculture. But it kind of works with oil in ways that allow i don't know like it, it,
0: yeah, I mean I guess because for oil, it's only like you know you you have a substance under the ground and you gotta take it out of the ground, and that's it, yeah. They, they're not worried about like destroying any ecosystems yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't threaten their productivity
1: at any point. <laughs> well, in, in, in fact, like they're you know it, that that's the whole point of it, right? Is right. destroy the ecosystem, unlike yeah. farming, where you have to you know you need the ecosystem to help you do the thing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably why it works. And then like any other like social consequences, you can basically like throw energy at it, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, and also. Uh, uh, th- this is sort of getting ahead of this, but one of the things Scott talks about is Hickinson income, which is income that just, it keeps going and going and going like, right. Yeah. Uh, and you know, with oil wells, you don't like, you're never going to get it and you're not supposed to right? Like eventually at some point, the is going to be tapped out and you move. Yeah. Whereas with agriculture, you, you, the, the goal of it is to generate Hickinson, Hickson, Hickson income, Hickson income. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you need yeah. to perpetuate so you can keep eating and your children can keep eating, et cetera. Et cetera. Right. Yeah. Yeah I and mean, when 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 you have to do that you actually have to like take the local sort of context into into account in a way you don't with just oil wells. Although
0: there is one more advantage to oil which is that like uh our like civilization completely depends on it for like every single aspect of it um but especially like preventing uh people from like rising up and killing the ruling class. Yeah. Um and so like as the oil starts to run out, like they can totally just raise the price and like, like they will sell every drop of oil that they take out of the ground, no problem.
1: There, there, there's a really good book about this called Carbon Democracy by Timothy Mitchell, mm-hmm. which talks about also oil, oil basically as a technique of social control. Because like, okay, this is sorry, I, you know, I, I said this is my last tangent, <laughs> another one. But okay, this is a very, very very short tangent. Basically, like coal miners could essentially just shut down because because of the way that. Moving coal around works and how difficult it is to get out of the ground. Like a coal miner strike can just shut down a country. Yeah. But with oil strikes, actually, like strikes are actually good for oil companies because any, any, like the problem with oil is there's too much of it. And you have to like do monopolistic things to like decrease the amount of it. You know, this is more complicated than this, but like, you know, if, 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 if something happens that actually decreases, like legitimately, genuinely decreases the supply of oil, that's like the best thing that could possibly happen like the iraq war yeah yeah foreign oil company and you know uh the, the capitalist power people talk about this with the sort of petrodollar coalition where you, you know you, you have this coalition to start wars in order to raise right oil prices for various reasons but you know but it, it's also, it's an incredibly effective tool social control and yeah read 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 cover democracy so i don't do this entire thing here for 30 <laughs> minutes about it yeah great book
0: yeah i i've been writing the books down um i'm gonna I will put them in the show description so people can look them up. Sweet. Okay, so back to the book. Um, The next section is called Monoculture and Polyculture. And Scott says there is no better illustration of the uh, myopic credo of high modernist agriculture than its nearly unshakable faith in the superiority of monoculture over the practice of polyculture found in much of the third world. That's one of those sentences I just really liked. Uh, yeah. there's, there's been a lot of those in this book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: um,
0: I'm not usually like a quote guy. Like I don't, I don't like quoting people, but um, the way he writes some of these is just really good. So yeah, he, he gets into some detail about polycropping. And he says uh, intercropping is especially effective in low fertility soils. And he doesn't mention this, but there is a particular reason that soils in the Americas were really fertile in the 20th century that doesn't apply to other parts of the world um which is you know how like our intensive agriculture situation came about uh i'm i'm talking about like uh you know killing the indigenous people who yeah were taking care of the soil and making it good <laughs> yep Ooh. yeah and um i actually didn't put this anywhere in the in the notes but like the whole thing of this is like the the like underlying thing that makes intensive agriculture work is like it's basically a fossil resource yeah because we have like millions of years of like natural buildup of humus and then like thousands of years of uh indigenous people with their indigenous farming practices like creating a healthy soil ecosystem and one that's like amenable to repeated planting um and we just like take that and like suck it dry of nutrients yeah. in order to grow like hu- huge massive fields of yellow dent corn yeah and then on top of that uh co-host Chris and I did an episode on uh guano uh which most people know it as like bat shit but it's actually uh mostly seabird shit and um uh, before the Haber-Bosch process was able to fixate nitrogen from the air and create, like, artificial nitrogen fertilizers. Mm -hmm. Um, Intensive agriculture was built on mining this, like, millions of years of seabird shit deposits around uh, the coast of South America. And so that was, like, another, like, straight fossil resource that was almost depleted if Mm -hmm. and would have been if not for the uh, Haber-Bosch process being created and we're doing the same thing with phosphorus right now most phosphorus comes from mineral sources and yeah. is being depleted rapidly
1: yeah and unlike nitrogen there's no you can't pull phosphorus out of the air actually it it would be extremely funny if we if if we somehow found a way to like mine phosphorus out of our own smog but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's happening anytime soon
0: you probably need like a tornado force like thing that sucks up air and yeah. <laughs> like spits out tiny amounts of phosphorus <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, he gets into, like, some of the basics of polycropping, which, like, he just read, like, an article on permaculture, and you'll get the same basic understanding of it. Uh, we're assuming that you have read that article, so uh, here's, here's the time to read the article. Three, two, one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, even if polycropping didn't increase yields, which it does, um, there is an important reason that it would be used by non-state farmers anyway, that... Uh, Scott gets into here which is that it increases food security because of the diversity of crops characteristics and disease resistances so like even if you plant like only potatoes if you plant like a dozen different varieties of potatoes then it's pretty likely that uh, a deadly disease that comes in and kills all of one kind of potato won't like absolutely destroy your harvest and like make you starve um, which is why these indigenous farmers, uh, were planting like all these different crops. Um, but there's, there's even other reasons for that. Like different crops maturing at different times, um, means that an individual crop failure will do relatively little damage and that, um, you don't, you don't have like this labor bottleneck, like with, yeah. um, these large monoculture farms which have to be harvested all by machine because like they wouldn't have enough labor otherwise
1: mm-hmm. yeah and this, this is also this is also one of the reasons why you have like just just the the, the unbelievable intense violence inflicted on immigrants in this country is mm-hmm. that like any disruption to like a- any sort of organized labor strikes that happen in california are just completely devastating because you know they're they're incredibly labor intensive, and they also are in, like highly skilled labor. And if those people stop working, like all of that stuff just rots. Yeah, and so, yeah, and you know the, and this this is in some sense this is this is this is the sort of mirror image of you know like on 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 the one hand, like you 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 gain you know you gain a lot of power and social control from having all of your stuff happening at one time. But on the other hand, like it it does actually make you weak to sort of in specific ways, like having, having these labor bottlenecks makes you weak to sort of, or, or like or, organize the power of organized labor. And then also in this place, in this case, specifically the, the, the power of organized labor of people who are extremely highly skilled
2: mm-hmm.
1: and who haven't, been, haven't you like, well, who, who capitalism literally cannot de-skill because without it, the whole thing will collapse.
0: Yeah. If you've never seen it, um, go look up some videos of, of these workers, like picking vegetables and fruits and, putting them into bags they're like insanely skilled at it it's Incredible, and it's like i mean it's like pretty sad to look at because they're obviously like destroying their bodies doing this yeah and they don't make very much money doing it
1: yeah shout out to another book here uh if you ever just want to be incredibly depressed or you want to learn more about this um there, there's an ethnography of field workers in in california called fresh fruit broken bodies that's a lot about this, like just the physical effects of this and there it's, hor- it's horrific. Yeah. This is the, this is the, 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 the Christopher plugs books. Show
0: <laughs> this is still only like one eighth of a young neocon show. <laughs> this is yeah, true it, including including the tangents like uh it, he'll go on like a 20 minute tangent and then i'll be like all right man we need to get back to the topic and he's like no i swear to god this connects and then he, <laughs> like 1 minute later he connects it and i'm like oh okay cool
1: <laughs> it's funny. he 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 thinks very similar to me but he like thinks more yeah and so you can, it's just longer and there is more of it <laughs> <laughs>
0: um okay so yeah uh so More reasons that uh, polycropping is good for farmers is, uh, you know, farmers live in families and so like different parts of the family um, or, you know, different parts of larger groups than that even um, might take care of different crops. Um, And so Scott says the planting regimen, in other words, is a reflection of social relations, ritual needs and culinary tastes. It is not just a production strategy that a profit-maximizing entrepreneur took straight out of the pages of a text in neoclassical economics, especially because uh, neoclassical economics models usually assume that you can't consume your own output. So Yeah, it's <laughs> great. Um, yeah, plus they're immortal. So, you know, what do they need food for? Well, they're also gods. Like, yeah, yeah they, they, they're all knowing. It's great. They know everything. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Incredible stuff.
0: Yeah, I mean, if they have a crop failure, I don't know why. Why don't they just get into a different industry entirely? Like, you, yeah, know, an yeah. instant. you know, that's, what, that's what, what we assume they do. <laughs> what, what do you mean these people are dying? That's against their self-interest. <laughs> just work on Wall Street. There's plenty of money there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one thing that I thought was interesting that Scott points out is, like, there's all these advantages to polycropping that make it, like, very obviously, like, at least something that should be investigated. Like, maybe we should look into it, because there are obviously significant advantages to it, and it's like the way that people were farming for thousands of years before the 1900s. But they don't really do that, and so he says it shows the power of both imperialist ideology and of the visual aesthetic of agricultural high modernism.
1: Oh, hey, we have this production method that's immensely more efficient than monocropping, but trees know in straight line. (laughs) (laughs) So <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah
0: I yeah, I was going to skip over this, but I'll just mention it briefly. He talks about Albert Howard, who was a British botanist in India who studied indigenous agriculture there and turned into what is now known as organic farming, and he developed a modern understanding of composting um and so Scott says his concern was was chiefly with overall soil health rather than the productivity of individual harvests which reminds me of the chicken experiment that I mentioned in the last episode uh, where they, like, pick the individually most productive chickens, which are the ones that just kill the other chickens and (laughs) take their eggs. Um, So that's basically, like, what uh, industrial agriculture is, the plants that kill other plants and take their shit. Wow, that metaphor works, like, way better than I thought it would. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, oh, and so this is where he mentions the Hicksian income. He uh, he says polyculture is more likely to produce what economists call Hicksian income, which is income that does not undermine factor endowments, which is like basically a way of saying like shit that you didn't make yourself, um, which will permit that income flow to continue indefinitely into the future. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't I didn't realize that, because uh, he didn't mention it before, but uh, he mentions the German force, but also apparently Japan has like very similar monoculture forests that they created um, that have led to severe ecological problems. And yeah, they actually like almost killed the golden Eagle and they're trying to bring it back with restoration ecology. Now silly Japanese should watch more Miyazaki movies. He tells you all about <laughs> ecology what the hell man. <laughs> um, all right. So the next subsection is about uh, shifting cultivation. Um, I was planning to skip this because it's the next three, actually, because they're very, very short.
1: Yeah. Do you have anything you wanted to talk about in any of those three? If people move around, it's hard for states to track them, and this pisses people off. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is another reason why states hate polycropping, because the people who do it move a lot.
0: One, One interesting fun fact was that a study on Filipino farmers found that a newly cleared plot of uh, slash and burn farming uh, had an average of 40 to 60 different cultivars planted in it, which is like wh- more than I even thought. Incredible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. The one after that is fertilizer versus fertility. It's basically just talking about like you know, uh, using fertilizers and in intensive agriculture versus like creating overall soil health. And then the one after that is a history of unauthorized innovation, which is um, just about how most Crop innovation came from indigenous farmers and was just like selected by scientists Mm -hmm. and those farms can be seen as like a a laboratory to experiment um, in a way that actually works instead of like, you know, a what's it called experimental field, whatever they call it. Yeah. So the next big section is the institutional affinities of high modernist agriculture. And um, so he's been talking about how like imperial knowledge and modernist aesthetic. um, But he says there's like more reasons for things to work this way. Um, So I'm just going to quote him directly here to the degree that, the starting over. To the degree that the cultivator's practices were presumed reasonable until proven otherwise, to the degree that specialists might learn as much from the farmer as vice versa, and to the degree that specialists had to negotiate with farmers as political equals, would the basic premise behind the official's institutional status and power be undermined? The unspoken logic behind most of the state projects of agricultural modernization was one of consolidating the power of central institutions and diminishing the autonomy of cultivators and their communities vis-a-vis those institutions. Every new material practice altered in some way the existing distribution of power, wealth, and status, and the agricultural specialists' claims to be neutral technicians with no institutional stake in the outcome can hardly be accepted at face value. So basically, like, they have to have... They have. They can't put themselves out of a job by admitting that like there's no point in their existence, um, is what he's saying.
1: Well, and I would also say about this, like especially when it comes to the, the 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 sort of neutral, the, the myth of the neutral technical person with no institutional outcome at stake. Like there's th- there is a reason that like some unbelievable percentage of the, the 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 senior members of the CCP used to be like came out of engineering technical schools, like those people. <laughs> Those people are not neutral, are not politically neutral in either of their roles.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think this also like this starts to get into the the deskilling topic because basically, like the whole point is the the specialists will be doing all of the thinking and just sort of direct, you know, unskilled laborers to do their bidding, essentially.
1: Yeah. And the whole point is to centralize power. You know, there's, there, there's an interesting story about this in... Uh, this is in Endnotes. Um, they talk about a, a series of battles that happened in like early 1900s Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like, like pre-World War I. Uh, there's this huge fight over essentially shop floor control mm-hmm. between, I think it's like a knife manufacturing plant, but this happens all over Germany, about whether sort of skill... like whether production was going to be managed by like the actual production workers, whether they're going to be able to sort of maintain their skilled labor status or whether they were all going, whether it was going to be just run by the factory director and they were going to sort of lose all of their skills. And the Democratic Party like backs the basically backs the capitalists, like ba- backs the sort of faction that's talking about how, well, we can improve efficiency if we deskill skill all these people. And this has, and they, they do this under the, the sort of, the, the guise of this sort of Marxist development of production thing. And this, this has just absolutely disastrous consequences for just the entire, really, like the entire world working class gets screwed by this because one, like, you know, like these these sort of highly skilled workers, they they, they both have, they both tend to be more radical than sort of the people who've been de-skilled and people who've been in the factory system for a long time. And they're also more, like, they're more politically powerful. And when the SPD like destroyed them, this, you know, th- this is one of the reasons why there's, there's no revolution in Germany and you get like the Nazis instead.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, and, and you see, you see this, the, the, you know, this, and this is one of the things that, that the world, you know, when, when we talk about the green revolution, right. And the whole, we need we need a green revolution to stop a red revolution. Like this is, this is, this is part of what they're thinking about because if, if you can, you know, if, if you can do this sort of de stuff, you're not going to get the kind of sort of peasant revolutions that have been happening for, you know, the, like, the whole 20th century. And it's also interesting that you know, like the communists do this too because they also don't want peasant revolution. Yeah. Like highly skilled laborers who run production themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's
0: interesting that like the prevailing communist rhetoric is we need a proletarian revolution, but like the vast majority of revolutions in history have been like mostly composed of peasants
1: yeah and, and, it's, and it's and it's worse than that because it's not just peasants it's peasants and then factory workers who are like the first gen out of the factory or, or uh coal workers basically and then the dock workers too for sort of some different reasons yeah but uh those are the people who like immediately whenever a communist revolution happens it's like we're going after the dock workers we're 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 transitioning to oil and we're going to just absolutely obliterate the peasantry and you know it it works to some extent like they they were able to hold on to power but you know
0: right i mean like the the more unskilled your workers the more more easily they can be replaced which not only like drives wages down but also yeah. you know if they if they think of striking you can easily just fire them yep whereas if you have workers that like you can't just replace them if they strike then they will like cripple you yeah and then like on the other side of it uh there's there's also skilling with uh like non-work activities like i always think about how my, my girlfriend had a student or had several students who like, she was talking about making coffee at home and they like, didn't understand what she was talking about. They were they didn't understand what? that you could make coffee at home very easily. Oh no. And thought it was like this really difficult thing to do that only like Starbucks workers could do or something like that. Jesus. And, and I mean like the, like the one pot or one cup coffee systems are like the same way, like it's not really doing anything for you. It's just like a pre-measured amount of coffee
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and it squirts hot water through it, which like you could just scoop a scoop of coffee into your fucking coffee machine and put water in it. It's not hard. <laughs> yeah. But like by de-skilling people in terms of like the, the things that they can make for themselves, mm-hmm. you're able to charge them more money for the same thing.
1: Well, and, and I think this, this also goes back to the sort of the whole neoclassical thing where people can't like consume their own products, right? Mm-hmm. Because any sort of that's like that's not a, a belief;
0: it's a wish list.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, and to some extent, it's it's always something that like can't work because you know, I, like this is one of, one of the things, like one of the big, big bases of the Chinese economy, for example, is that so basically the Chinese government just doesn't pay insurance for its like three hundred million migrant workers. Oh, that's good and. Yeah, it's great. It's and and you know, uh, Chuang, like sort of calculated this like they basically calculated like if if Chinese com- companies had to actually pay out their insurance, 50% of them would go bankrupt immediately. <laughs> wow. Now, and and the the way they can get away with this, well, one is because they murdered the labor movement. And the second way is that I uh, they so those migrant workers their 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 sort of their residential status is still technically in in their their villages where they came from. And they can they sort of they can sort of draw income off of it and they have they have this sort of like kind of non capitalist but like they they, they 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 have the ability to produce for themselves to supplement their own wages and you know th- this acts as the sort of like non capitalist subsidy to like in 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 the same way that you know like this is what a, it's what a welfare right it's, it's the, the reason that like uh, Walmart when when you when you like sign up for a job for them like the part of the job training is applying for SNAP right. It's 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 the sort of the, the the state subsidy that allows you to lower wages more. Except this is you know it's it's based off of sort of the 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 the, the, the remains of sort of socialist period like collective farms mm-hmm. and yeah. But you know, it, but but eventually you know, and this is like part of the anti-poverty efforts is eventually China wants to destroy that whole thing, right? Is you need to turn everyone into a wage worker, etc., etc. And so e- even even in the instances where they're temporarily surviving on the fact that people have their own skills and people can sort of, you know, consume their own products. Like eventually that needs to be destroyed. Right. And you know, and you can see these sort of tensions working themselves out in the in the Chinese economy. And you know, and you you see you see you see versions of this like around the world.
0: Yeah, in um The Invention of Capitalism by Michael Perlman, he talks a lot about how um political economists around the 19th and early 20th century were like Kind of obsessed with the appropriate amount of uh, land that people should cultivate to grow food for themselves, because you don't want them growing too much, because then they'll be independent. <laughs> yeah. But you don't want them growing too little, because then you would have to like pay them more money so they could like buy food. Yeah. Um. And so they settled on like like a quarter to a half an acre, basically. But <laughs> well, the
1: other thing I was thinking about this one is is the way that. Like, well, partially, you know, the God, this is another extremely long tangent, but <laughs> the, the the way that, like, you know, because, like, a lot of, like, in New York, New York, for example, used to be fed by just like, there were just a bunch of fish uh-huh. in the ocean, right? And you could catch them and you could eat them. And then we poisoned all of them. And you see this, 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 this sort of just all out war on, and it's like, even in the 30s, like, a lot of people survived because they had these small vegetable plots, they had these sort of, they could hunt animals. And we've just destroyed all that. And you know, and the the biggest example of this obviously was like the, we, when, when we killed all the bison. Mm-hmm. Yep. As you know, basically a counterinsurgency technique to do, gen- do genocide against Indigenous people is, you, you know, you you get this sort of capitalist war on nature as as a way of essentially de-skilling people and forcing them into the sort of wage wa- labor process.
0: Yeah, I, I did like a sidetrack episode like two, three episodes ago, and uh, it was. About how there used to be, like, uh, an open commons, like, in most of the U.S., and it was basically destroyed as, like, a revanchist project by um, former slave owners once uh, their slaves were emancipated because the slaves were very good at, um, you know, surviving off of the commons. They would graze animals and Mm -hmm. trap animals and go fishing and stuff, and – they had this like decades long effort to create um game laws and um i forget what the other thing is called but like basically laws that prevent you from grazing animals at all or without a permit or whatever stock laws that's what it's called mm. yeah okay so the the next section is called the simplifying assumptions of agricultural science and so scott in this section raises the question of why technical studies show much more promise than the actual results bear out and related to this why are most uh of the successful changes to agricultural agriculture pioneered by god pioneered by cultivators rather than by the state so he talks about like isolating variables which he makes a point to say like it's not bad to like in the complete abstract to like isolate a variable and, and test it, but it doesn't work. Um, the way that it's done here, because for one agricultural experiments focus on crop by crop tests to discover the impacts of variation on yields. So they're like, they're looking at a like single type of crop in a small, tiny experimental field. And they usually only look over like one season um, or maybe two, maybe, mm-hmm. and then they just say like, "Yeah, this will work." If you extrapolate it to you know mil- hundreds of millions of acres, no problem. So he gets into some detail about this through the various subsections. Oh, I, I thought this was interesting because I-, I don't know much about physics at all, but um, he explains that like even in a Newtonian physical system where there is like known exact formulas to predict traje- trajectories of stuff, it's easy to do that with like one body. Um, like one object, but then when uh, like as you go up in the number of bodies, uh, like a ten-body problem has no non-unique orbits, and predicting the long-term state is almost impossible.
1: Yeah. So, like, um, I okay, I, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher some of this because my knowledge of this is second hand, but like my dad's an astronomer, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, like, like even three bodies is like basically impossible to calculate. And yeah, once you get to like ten, it's just it's a disaster. You know, it, like and, uh, astronomy is famous for doing the sort of they they, they have the most intense version of the just ass, ass, assume like the spherical cow, uh-huh. where like you know like they'll, they'll they'll just round like pi up to ten, like <laughs> factors of a hundred are just like, yeah whatever yeah it's fine. <laughs> like, they, have, they have all of these problems they have to do because. They, they they essentially have to do all of these sort of broad generalizations because there's literally mathematically no good way to describe what you're dealing with.
0: Yeah. That's so funny because I, I thought the opposite. I thought, like, it was relatively simple to calculate that sort of thing for, like, 10, 10 bodies. I didn't think that was a big deal.
1: Yeah, it, get, it gets really
0: bad really <laughs> quickly. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Uh, Scott already mentioned Rachel Carson, but he didn't, he didn't talk about DDT in any detail um, prior to the section. Um, So he's using DDT as an example of a change whose intended effects, even if they work, uh, lead to like unintended catastrophe. Mm -hmm. So the, the proof of DDT came from like these experimental plots um, where they just tested in like this small um, crop field. And, uh, the negative effects, the proof of the negative effects came from outside the scientific community. So the, the public awareness first came in the form of noticing the decline of songbird populations. Um, so people noticed it wasn't as noisy outside and that's because DDT was like devastating the, not only like their food sources, but also like it was bioaccumulating in the birds themselves and like making it harder for them to reproduce. So, This led to a number of other discoveries that eventually caused DDT to be banned, which, you know, all done. Problem solved. Uh, Good job, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And so here he starts getting into uh, externalities. He's quoting um, a rogue economist testifying to Congress in 1972, I think, about DDT. And he says, only in the past decade has serious attention been given to the fact that the large agricultural firm is able to achieve benefits by externalizing certain costs. The disadvantages of large-scale operation fall largely outside the decision-making framework of a large farm firm. Problems of waste disposal, pollution control, added burdens on public service, deterioration of rural social structures, impairment of the tax base, and the political consequences of a concentration of economic power have typically not been considered as costs of large scale by the firm. They are unquestionably larger uh, costs to the larger community. Yeah, so in theory, large-scale operations should enable the firm to bring a wide range of both costs and benefits uh, within its internal decision-making framework. In practice, the economic and political power that accompanies large-scale provides constant temptation to the large firm to take the benefits and pass on the costs. So I wrote a whole aside here. Um, I probably won't read all of it, but uh, you check it out if you want to. Um, But basically, like, I, I've thought this many times, but I've never like put it on the record anywhere. I think it's very safe to say that under a class system, uh benefits go to those who least need them and are most able to claim them, while costs tend to go to those who are the most harmed by them and are least able to resist them. So in other words, like wealth moves toward the top and ill moves towards the bottom. And that's that's really what externalities are, is like people with lots of political power being able to just pass on the negative effects of their wealth accumulation to people who don't have a lot of political power and uh, often left-leaning people. I don't, I don't think like communists tend to say this, but like, you know, squishy socialist type people will say like, we need to internalize those costs. But there's a lot of reasons that that's like either not going to happen because of the political aspect or it's just like literally impossible. Um, So for example, like water pollution what is the cost of that? Like if we were to internalize the cost, what, what is the cost of water pollution? It's, I mean, we can't calculate it because it's like very complex and doesn't have like a direct cause and effect relationship to anything. Um, and even if it did like being able to prove that is not easy. Um, and then like, What do you, like, what does, what does the number mean? Like, usually externalities are calculated as like lost productivity, but like lost productivity basically treats like corporations as the victims of their own harms. Yeah. (laughs) Because they are the ones that are losing out on the productivity or it would be in terms of the amount of money it would take to repair the damage that it caused. Which basically assumes that humanity is omnipotent and can like unpollute water by spending enough money or doing enough innovation. So neither of those really work. And I I get into like other details on like even if they did work, there's reasons why like you wouldn't be able to internalize costs. Um so if you're interested,
1: check the show notes. Did you have anything you wanted to add? Yes, I, I was an environmental studies major for most of college and I wanted to I wound up not getting the degree for it's a long story, but I, I took, like, basically all of the classes except for, like, one stats thing, um, and, you know, and I ran into this all the time of people people whose solutions, specifically you got this with climate change, was people's solutions was just, like, okay, well, let's just, like, make people pay for, like, you know, you got, like, carbon credits, or, like, okay, so how do, how do we protect this, like, tree, right, and it's like, oh, we'll just put a price on it. Yeah. And it's like, none of them think this through. I mean, it's a classic neoclassical thing where it's like, uh, this is, you know, this is, this is one of the classic problems with libertarianism, which is that anytime you have an unregulated market, the first people who are going to use it is organized crime. Yeah. <laughs> and they never, they never think about this. Like it, it, this is a Bitcoin. Like you saw this, like, like literally, well, crime is illegal. So, you know, yeah, crime is clean, you can't do it, whatever. But you know, like the, like the, the mob <laughs> is always like the mob is always going to sort of outmaneuver the, entre- the entrepreneur. Um, but you know, it, it but when, when you get up to the, the level of sort of carbon taxes and when you get to the level of sort of like selling off carbon sinks, like – okay, so you have – you're dealing with a much more sophisticated and powerful class of organized criminal, which is the state. Right. And like if like – if, yeah, so you know what, what – and once, once you put a monetary value on like a bunch of trees, right – well, that means that you can directly convert those trees into like bandar Bush's second yacht <laughs> right and this this is this is a disaster this is like this this is is this is one of the worst things you can possibly do because it means that you know you know if, if you think about this from a neoclassical perspective it's like oh, the indigenous people on the land now they have like the value of the land and they can free to sell it or collect rent from it what actually happens and you know if if you look at the places where people have sold carbon credits. It, you know, it tends to be places like Brazil, it tends to be places like Myanmar. And in both Brazil and Myanmar, there's a bunch of indigenous people living on this land. And then the army comes in and kills them all and takes the land and then sells it off to like some corporations. Like, oh, it's a carbon credit here. You're offsetting this much carbon. But then, you know, and then they cut the trees down anyways because they're the army and who's going to stop them? Right. And it's like, okay, well, you can't, you, you can't, you cannot, like, you know, make people pay for externalities because. You know, well, why are they going to pay you for it? They have guns. Yes. and you know and this is, yeah, and people, people don't people, people don't want to look at the fact that giving a monetary value to something, the first thing it does is it, it makes it able to be stolen. Right, And immediately converted into other kinds of goods, which you know, like the state, like the military dictatorship or ex-organized crime or just like your corrupt local mayor, like can turn into a yacht.
0: Yeah, and and, I mean, like, even uh, without that aspect, like, by putting a price on it, you're saying that as long as the benefit that you get out of this harm is, like, brings in more money than the harm pulls out, then it's fine. So, like, yeah. If you can cut down a whole forest and turn it into something that is like, brings in more revenue than the cost of the externalities of cutting the forest down, then no problem. Like, yeah, 10,000 yachts. That's fine.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, you, you, you ultimately come to, you can't eat money. You can't drink oil. Right. Right. That's you know, that's that's the inevitable conclusion of this.
0: And another thing I didn't think of while I was writing this section is like it kind of assumed like if you put a price on trees, does does that ever get adjusted? Like do you just put a price on trees like once and then that's it? Because if so, inflation is always happening and so like eventually yeah, yeah. that's not gonna be very much money in terms of
1: the rest of the economy. Wait, 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 but haven't haven't you heard the? It's impossible. You know, you 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 you've seen the models, right? It's impossible for the market to misprice an asset <laughs> <laughs> value. Yeah. Pay no attention. Pay no attention to the 2008 behind the curtain. <laughs>
0: I'm forgetting the infinitely many competitors. So.
1: Oh. <laughs> it's great. It's great.
0: But yeah, so the the real way to avoid externalities is basically just to like limit power differentials and conflicts of interest that make it appealing or beneficial to do them in the first place. Um, so like, I think this book makes the, a good case that it's not just a, the state that you have to get rid of, but like any sort of large bureaucratic organization
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, because they would all inflict the same sort of plague on humanity of externalities. Okay. So... There's one more subsection in this part called uh, short-sightedness, and this is just about how um, these studies only last, like, one season, and that there are factions of agricultural science that differ in their view on, like, short-term versus long-term productivity, but it's just that. It's productivity. It's not like, oh, we need to not destroy the ecosystem, uh, because if we do, we'll be able to produce less corn. That's uh, that's (laughs) what their thing is. All right, so the second to last, third to last section is called The Simplifying Practice of Scientific Agriculture. And this, he's basically talking about how, like, uh, crops are more than just like the grain kernels that come out of them. Um, so where like agricultural science assumes that your corn yield is equal to like the no- like the amount of edible grain that you get out of it. Uh, there's actually, believe it or not, a lot of other parts of the plant uh, that can also be useful. and so he gets into like a lot of those other varieties or o- other parts and why like different varieties produce like better versions of those parts of the plant that are also useful to um indigenous farmers and he also talks about uh in Sierra Leone they say like a rice cooks badly um as a like a shorthand for all these properties that go into like how a rice is produced and processed and cooked and at some point he gives this example of like like a rice variety that is like less predated by birds because they have longer ons and like the scientists would say like, Oh, well that's bad because, uh, you have more mass that isn't the grain kernel. So you're like wasting whatever. (laughs) Oh, it's in the next subsection. But yeah. Yeah. The last subsection is just about how like farmers have as much diversity as like the crops on the farm. And, uh, we covered a lot of that in the Tanzania episode, so I'll I'll just skip that part. So the second to last section is two agricultural logics compared, and this one I thought was pretty interesting. Although, uh, like I told you in in the DM, I was kind of falling asleep by this point. But <laughs> so Scott brings up the research of a very long named Dutch guy about uh, Andean farmers who grow potatoes as a staple. And so he basically says they cultivate, like, over a dozen different plots on a permanent basis and others on a rotating basis. And because they're in the mountains, they have, like, all these different conditions. Um, And each plot may have anywhere between one and ten different cultivars each. And he's saying that basically, like, they plant all these seeds as, like, a well-placed bet on what the conditions of – Farmer going to be for this season. Um, and I thought the most interesting part of this was that he, when he compares it to industrial agriculture, he points out that industrial agriculture is exactly the opposite of that. It produces specific ideal crops in a lab and then tries to force the environment to adapt to the one crop being planted in a massive area. Um, and so industrial agriculture has to have everything going right for it to work at all and suffers. Greater losses when any one thing goes wrong.
1: Yeah, and this and this is you know part part of the problem with this is you know when when you when you look at the Andean farmers right, the Andean farmers like you know they're they're rotating through crops, they're also planting a bunch of different kinds of uh, potatoes at the same time, and, and that they you know they're able to do this this really fine grained differentiation between you know even like like meter by meter right of oh hey this soil is this has this property these soils and these properties there's like a tree stump here there's stuff there and they they're able to sort of you know and you said this, they're able to operate extremely efficiently because you know in in, in a way that the sort of lab potato like industrial farmers can't because they, they understand the local terrain they have all this local knowledge and well i, I guess i can pivot into this you know Okay, one one of David Graeber's things is that whenever someone says that, that that their goal is efficiency, they're lying, and and they're saying it because they don't want to tell you what their actual goal is.
0: Yeah, that's that's a big bugbear of mine because efficiency alone is like meaningless. You could have efficiency for anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a not an end. Yeah, you know, it, you know, it, it could be like like the you know the, your efficiency could be the most efficient way to kill people, right? Like you don't want this.
0: Yeah. Exactly yeah someone someone said something like about capitalism being more efficient like a couple weeks ago, and I was like efficient at what <laughs> like what are you talking about specifically
1: <laughs> yeah well, it is it's, it's 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 incredibly efficient at making sure that like Mark Zuckerberg can eat a good water.
0: we're not gonna survive
1: <laughs> yeah like you know like or you know you look at global food production right like you know we we produce enough food to feed eight billion people we feed six billion people with it, and we've completely destroyed like every ecology that exists in order to do this in order to again right. make more food than we need and then not feed people <laughs> <laughs> but you know but this is something about about sort of industrial agriculture and the sort of the sort of high modernist collectivized farms is that again it's not about efficiency because they're not efficient right they're com- they're incredibly inefficient even even the modern american farming system again only functions because billions they have billions and billions of dollars of agricultural subsidies that no one else gets but again they're not really designed their their goal isn't efficiency their goal is social control yeah and as as engines of social control they are in fact extremely efficient for the most part you know sometimes it breaks down but like you know the 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 soviet collective farms like were successful in completely annihilating uh the soviet peasantry as a political force and you, you got this with 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 Tanzania, too, where it's like, yeah, congratulations. Like you you actually did successfully crush the sort of, like, you, you basically crushed the rural populations as a political force just in time to be overthrown by a military coup. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's a good job, guys. Like, you know, this, this is one of the ways that sort of state socialist projects undermine themselves because, a, a, as part of the sort of like the, the, the way the state works, the way the sort of the logics of states function, the simplifying assumptions they have to make, and the way that their policy you know is is designed to force everyone like you know what a law right like a law is one a group a small group of people have made a decision and they will now commit violence unless you like specifically obey them right Th- this is all completely sort of antithetical to any kind of autonomy which means that you know any kind of autonomous organization you see this in Latin America all the time where it's like okay so a government will take power based off of a revolutionary movements and then they immediately have to turn around and smash the movement that created them because if they don't do this, there's a you know, there's 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 a second power base around. That's autonomous, it's not tied to the state. And so they do this, and eventually the state wins basically every time. And then the, and then the, that socialist government gets overthrown by a coup. Because if this, they've, you know, now they've destroyed their own base, there's nothing to stop the right from sort of destroying them. And and this this logic of, of sort of state socialism, like e- even if you are a state socialist, is ultimately self-defeated. Because you're 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 basically, you know, Marx talks about like Like capitalism creates its own like is creating its own grave diggers but like the people who created their own grave diggers were social was socialism right like they they created this technical class that you know eventually sort of transforms into a capitalist class they in in the sort of like i don't know market socialist probably isn't the right word but in the sort of like social democratic latin american context specifically one of the big things they do is they create like they they create a new middle class and then they get overthrown by that middle class because they're (laughs) a middle class they have all the class characteristics (laughs) <laughs> the middle class and it's like great job guys like you really you really would have did it
0: <laughs> yeah i have a really glib way of of putting that which is um anti-capitalism always leads back to capitalism <laughs> like if you resist capitalism specifically but not like the state in general yeah. then it's just going to lead back to capitalism you're going to create a state and then that state's going to become a capitalist state because yeah capitalism is just like rationalized state management and so like um the the other the other thing that i say all the time is if you hate capitalism and not the state you just hate being rational you know <laughs> what, once you start like figuring out the most efficient way to run your state you know as in like the most efficient way to consolidate control and um you know be in control of everything you're gonna eventually come back to capitalism so yeah Stageism is a plague on on humanity. <laughs> in
1: other words, oh God. Well, I mean, I, I think I think, I think the, the the only way to rehabilitate stagism is by you know, an understanding that what sort of we could call Soviet communism, you could call sort of actually existing socialism, is is just well, it, it, you know, and the, the, this this is why Tanzania, the 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 Tennessee Valley Authority, uh like you know, American projects in Vietnam and. The Soviet Union looked the same because they're all development ideologies. Yeah, right. The whole the whole point of them is to build developmental state.
0: So state. So the thing to do with stagism is to invert it and go backwards, which is why Pol Pot is the best socialist.
1: God, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) not You know, I mean, I think, but like, you 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 have to at some point realize that, like, you know, state state socialism was essentially just a phase of capitalist development in countries that couldn't have been. Yeah. You know, develop otherwise. Like there's this great De Xiaoping line that's uh we no longer know what socialism is or how to get there, yet it remains the goal. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a perfect encapsulation of this. It's like wow. yeah, congratulations. You, you've you you successfully built a developmental state. But what do you do with developmental state? Well the only thing you can actually developmental states don't develop communism, the only thing they actually develop is just capitalism. And so, you know, like really like all like both both feudalism feudalism turns into capitalism or it turns into developmental state which also turns into capitalism and so you have to you have to actually find something else that is the stage beyond capitalism that's not just like hey guys we like you know it's it's not Stalin saying we're we're going to do capitalist industrialization in 10 years because hey guess what if you do capitalist industrialization you get capitalism
0: (laughs) (laughs) i mean you could even reclaim the developmental rhetoric where development is like developing a you know uh I'm trying to think of a cool word but all i can think of is fecund uh, ecosystem you know like a really like diverse and resilient ecosystem and that that's what you're developing and uh you know that's kind of the opposite of what the normal development is yeah
1: well I, you know and I, and I think also like in the, like what you know if you want to talk about the, the genuinely damaging stuff about development is that d- development posits that you know th- there's a linear history and that yeah people are just further behind in time. Right. But you know that's like that's not what's happening. It's there's uh the somewhat crazed Venezuelan anthropologist Fernando Coronel, who uh the, the man the man who fully expressed the trielectic and then died and never explained it to anyone else. <laughs> trielectic. <laughs> yeah it's great. No one no one has any idea how it works. <laughs> Like literally, no one is great. But he he had this great phrase that he called it the international division of nature and labor, where he talks about instead of, instead of the people being locked in time, it's that capitalism sort of assigns different like you know there's there's the capitalist division of labor, but then it also assigns different sort of levels of development based on or what I call levels of levels of industrialization mm-hmm. based on sort of resource distribution and you know also colonial power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That is, that, that is another incredibly long tangent in this tangent episode. So, I mean,
0: all that's left really is the conclusion. So if there's any other points that you wanted to bring up, um, now's a great time for that.
1: Yeah, I think just, just in general, people have, people have this real, especially sort of people who call themselves scientific socialists, have this just incredible hostility to indigenous agricultural practices. And th- this is true.
0: Oh, that is exactly like the yeah. high modernist aesthetic thing that he's talking about all through
1: this book for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because you get to see the different ways this plays out. Cause, and this also plays out inside of, you know, this is why he's talking about Nairi mm-hmm. and you know, the way this plays out inside the social States, but like you get this in, there's a huge thing in Vietnam where like the Vietnamese government just like it was like the Highland Indigenous people just get absolutely slaughtered by by the sort of socialist government, and you you see you see this like Sinicization events in China, and you see this even even when you have like people who are Indigenous in in charge of governments in Latin America, you mm-hmm. get these huge battles. Like Bolivia has this or these massive battles between sort of ind- Indigenous people who don't want development. Versus the sort of like the, the sort of state socialists who are like, no, you like we're 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 gonna we're gonna make this giant highway that goes through your through your land, right? And you know, and pe- people have this real, like, even people who call themselves leftists, even people who think they're sort of pro Indigenous, have this real hatred of sort of the Indigenous practices and Indigenous sort of, I guess you could call it science, but it's Indigenous sort of agricultural practices, and Indigenous ways of life, and. I just—we're all gonna die unless we stop doing the stuff that we're doing, mm-hmm. right? Like this is, this is the thing about developing productive forces. If, if we develop the productive forces much further, there's life is not going to survive on Earth. And you know, you you have to be able to get over the stuff St- Scott is talking about about how you know, like the sort of agricultural specialist won't learn from indigenous peoples, right? You you have to get over that stuff because. These people have, you know, I mean, and then there's there's a lot of reasons for this, but you know, one of them is that indigenous people have, have just an unbelievable amount of sort of agricultural knowledge mm-hmm. that like could bail the rest of us out of our mistakes. And, you know, that's that's in some sense like a, a terrible burden that, you know, we've 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 put on indigenous people by just massacring them and replacing their, their forms of social organization and their their ways of life with like our shit. But You know, like you, like you, you're, you're, you're gonna have to get over your just like techno modernist fetishism or whatever and, you know, learn how to crop.
0: It's, it's funny. Even, even with that specific, uh, bit, like the them having the, uh, you know, cultural genetic plant knowledge to like restore biodiversity, I was looking at, uh, this vice video about the future of farming because i wanted to get mad at it you know because <laughs> the, the first part was about uh some dutch guy who you know made a big giant hydroponic farm that's like you know vertical or whatever people are obsessed with vertical farming for whatever reason even though it's stupid <laughs> the second half was uh about like a permaculture farm which was better but i saw in the comment section like People saying, like, oh, don't worry about, like, biodiversity loss because we have the the Svalbard Seed Bank. Oh, God. Which
2: Uh.
0: I'm guessing doesn't have the same level of uh, diversity as the, like, land races that indigenous cultivators are keeping.
1: Just a wild guess. Yeah, well, also, like, they're not creating new seeds. Yeah. Right. And you know, this is one of the things that they They're they're constantly creating slightly different. And
0: doesn't it depend on like cli- like intense climate control? Like that's the reason it's a thing.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and this is also, I mean, I just as a sort of general revolutionary note, like there, there's there's lots of moral reasons for this, but like if, if if you're not compelled by the moral reasons, like at at least see the sort of scientific necessities of climate change reasons for the fact that any revolution North America is going to have to like maybe i'm not sure if led by is exactly the right term but like it's going to have to be an indigenous revolution or it's not going to happen at all and we're all going to die mm-hmm. yeah i was like like land, land land back is not like a was it was it
0: you that did the the tweet of like there are two tendencies in the modern left land back and something else and like th- throws it like a grenade and runs away
1: <laughs> oh yeah that's yeah is it was a land, land yeah land back and communization
2: yeah basically
1: is <laughs> well, yeah, the, the ultra left <laughs> Yeah, like you know, like it, it's not like it's not just like a slogan or tendency. It's like like either we do this or like we, fa- we 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 face the extinction of most of humanity and I mean we're we're already just gonna lose countries. Yeah. Right. Even even in the best case scenarios, countries are just gonna be we're lost to the sea. Right. And if we don't want to get any worse, we have to do land back. <laughs> like there's there's no alternative.
0: Yeah, this chapter definitely makes a good case for that. And uh Yeah. I also think it makes a good case against, like, specialization. Yeah. Like, I think specialization is, like, a very statist thing, like, very mega-machine thing to do. And if, like, you know, a couple billion people had the sort of knowledge of local ecological conditions and um, this, like, wealth of plant cultivars, then I don't think we would be in much danger at all.
1: Yeah. Well, especially if, 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 if there weren't people at gunpoint forcing them not to do it,
2: mm-hmm.
1: like, and, you know, and you, you know, and, and this isn't to say that like, it's not, you know, like people screw up people, you know, people, 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 even people who have really sophisticated knowledge of the sort of local stuff, like they'll make mistakes, but also like, like the, 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 the agriculture that was being done specifically in North America in the like two or 300 year period before sort of uh, the Europeans got, got here, was really good,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they'd created a system that had a huge amount of biodiversity, that was relatively stable, that didn't involve, you know, and, and, you know, obviously, they're, they're intentionally maintaining sort of buffalo numbers and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. you know, like it was a good system, right? <laughs> and we can, you know, like it, obviously, like whatever system we, we're doing isn't going to just be exact repeat of that, but like it is possible contra sort of primitivist fantasies like it is actually possible to have human natural relations where we don't literally kill every plant (laughs) and we kill every animal like we can do this and we we have done this before and we can do it again
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i was i was gonna heap on the like bad stuff but i i think it is important to put that out there that like we're not, we're not for sure all doomed, you
1: know? Yeah.
0: Things can come back.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I think also, you know, as damaging as a blip as it's been, like, we have to keep in mind, pe- people, think, people think on a timescale, you know, when, when they think about what was long ago in the past, I think about, like, Rome. Rome was, like, 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's 4,000 years of state history, like, before that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then there's hundreds of thousands of years of history Way beyond that, hundreds of thousands. Everything we're seeing right now is this just tiny, microscopic blip on the sort of you know broad, broad, broad not not even on geological time, broad historical human time, uh-huh. right? All the sort of violence that we're seeing is just, it's, a, it's a blip, and you know as as, lo- as long as we don't irrevocably damage the planet and irrevocably sort of destroy ourselves, like it can just be a blip that like a hundred thousand years from now, there are like tales of the bad time when we like the whoops, we did civilization time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> know, like, this, is, this, is, this is the thing. This, this is a future that we could have,
0: but you know, we won't have like uh PlayStation five. So I don't know if it's really <laughs> worth it. Um, I think I would rather just kill everyone. <laughs> I'll just say the conclusion part real quick. Um, Scott says high modernist agriculture is associated with unparalleled agricultural productivity in the West, which I wonder if that's actually true. I didn't have time to look it up. I actually buy this, but, you know, okay. Unparalleled agricultural productivity slash subsidies. I mean, I guess, like, it, in the terms that they measure it, yes, sure. Yeah. You know, just like uh, productivity has its own specific definition here, which, you know, we yeah. we think of it as, like, the qualitative, like – Oh yeah, being more productive, but they're surely measuring it in specifically like yield per acre or something like that.
1: Yeah, but I, I also like I also say that like e- even even sort of capitalists like if, if even if you read the, the capitalist like like the if you read like the like the Koch think tank, right? Like huh. all even the sort of capitalist think tanks think that American agriculture is extremely inefficient, we shouldn't subsidize it. So that's a good point. Yeah. It's, it's un, it's unclear to me whether, <laughs> whether this is actually agricultural productivity, or agricultural subsidies. Right. So yeah. Yeah. But yeah.
0: Well, we, we did grow way more food than the number of people that need to eat. So, um, it's true. Yeah. But, uh, and we have McDonald's everywhere. So that's, that's cool. <laughs> um, but, uh, so for this, uh, for this reason, agricultural scientists have, uh, absolute faith in their version of reality. So like, Because they see themselves as having done better than any other person in history, essentially, they will just disregard anyone who says, like, hey, you're stupid and um, think that, like, indigenous cultivators are backwards people stuck in their own ways, uh, whereas they are actually the ones that are backwards and stuck in their own ways. Yep. So, yeah, that's the, the last bit of the chapter. Any last minute thoughts before we wrap it up? I think we covered it pretty well. You, there is one thing you said. Uh, I think the point about how if you can make a controlled environment follow the rules exactly, then that gives you incredible degrees of power. I didn't really
1: understand what you meant by that. Oh yeah. So this this was sort of going back to the de-skilling thing, mm-hmm. which is that okay. So what a lot of what de-skilling is is that okay. So you, you know you you have these like the 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 cow is spherical models, right? Right. That just, you know, that they can't be fit out. And, you know, the, 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 the sort of project of, you call, I guess you call it high modernism or sort of capitalist modernity is, is to, to, to make those like cows actually do the thing they're supposed to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, and part of the way you have to do this is de But if, if you can create production processes where humans really do act like they're supposed to in the models, and again, you you can only do this by sort of by by converting human labor into machines. But if you can do this, this gives you unbelievable amounts of political power. Because right, yeah, because a like a everyone's everyone's replaceable. Um, you know, this this creates social atomization. This creates sort of you know you 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 have an environment that you completely and totally control, and that that gives you basically unlimited political power and the ability to just do whatever terrible capitalist or even even sort of capitalist or socialist you know sort of like state state or like soviet socialist things and yeah that's incredibly dangerous
0: yeah true i was just thinking it's like uh you know there's the the like 3d printing thing was like uh oh we can make machines that make parts of themselves um but this is the opposite of that it's a machine that can destroy parts of itself (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) um okay well I think that should just about do it, uh, Chris. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you would like to plug?
1: Um, okay, I can. I have a Twitter account. It's at itbchr3. Um, it's also the ice must be destroyed, dude. I I don't know. I I am morally questioning whether I should continue to have this substack, but I have one, <laughs> and it's called the Long Twenty First Century and I occasionally publish things there. Yeah. So that's, 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 that's the, that's the extent of my plugging stuff.
0: Cool. I will link that in the show description along with uh, those books that you mentioned.
1: Sweet. Thank you.
0: Uh, so thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I think there's only two more chapters left in the book. Um, I have shit. I haven't figured out who's going to be on the next one. Well, (laughs) 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 Bye. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our other episodes on every podcast platform, including Spotify and YouTube. We would love it if you left a nice review on iTunes, which helps people get the show in their recommendations or tell your friends if you're cool enough to have those. We have a low-key merch shop at Teespring with some cool shirt designs. I know it's not really good to use them, but until there's significant interest in merch, it would be pretty impractical to do a run of merch from a proper printer. So if people are interested, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at NeighborSciPod. If you want to support the show and help pay our producer, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NeighborScience. Our producer for some of our episodes is Casino Socks. You can check out his music at soundcloud.com slash Socks. And finally, you can check out our website, neighborsciencepodcast.com, which has tags on all our episodes. So if you're looking for a particular subject, it's much easier to find on there than just scrolling through the entire list of episodes in your podcast app. And thanks again for listening.